The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us through your word. And because, Lord, you want to be known by us and you have made yourself known to us through your word, we come to your word to trust you with your word. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you to to open up your word to us, to show us how wonderful Jesus is in this text. Father, whatever we are carrying into uh, this next week, whatever we have endured this past week, whatever trials we have gone through, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us now. Remedy our broken hearts with the gospel. Show us how wonderful you are. Father, we ask that you would glorify yourself in our midst this morning. We ask that you would glorify yourself through your word. Lead us this morning, Father. Amen. Have you ever had an experience where you had one thing expected? We expected one thing, but received the opposite. Like, not just that your expectations weren't met, but actually that what you did receive was the opposite of what you were expecting. Let me give you an example. One of the things that I love to do at the end of a very long day is one of the best ways I've found to relax is to have a long, hot bath. Um, I know some people are like pro hot baths, some people just can't believe, they just think this is, that's just awful. I love long hot baths and I don't know of a better way to relax at the end of a big day than to have a long hot bath. And I like to uh, you know, light a candle, um, you know, get a little bit of chocolate, uh, maybe pour a glass of wine as well. Um, it's, really, it's really lovely. I've got this really neat trick where I get my phone and I put it into a Ziploc bag so that it's protected from the water and I connect it to a Bluetooth speaker that's also water resistant. And then I put my phone into one of those Gorillapod tripods where you can attach it to the tap and so I can sit back and watch a movie and, and have chocolate in the bath by candlelight. It's wonderful. If you've never done it before, let me be an advocate for a long hot bath watching Gladiator or something like that. It's fantastic. Really, really great. So here's the reason why I'm telling this story. Two years ago, in the middle of winter... Uh, it's 2018. I'd had a long, hot day. It was a rainy day, like what we've been experiencing in the last few weeks. And it was very, very cold. And I had a day full of meetings in and out of the car. I was soaked through. I was very cold. And I started to get excited about my hot bath as I went home. And um, I got home uh, and... It was very, like, I was just cold and shivering. I was just very, very excited by this. And uh, we were living in a rental at the time. We were living at a townhouse where we were building our current house in, uh, in Baringa. And I turned the hot tap on, just straight hot, nothing else. Put the plug in, and then when I got all the other things ready, it was really, I was so excited for this. And when I knew the bath was going to be full, I grabbed the things and I went to the bath and I put my foot into the bath and it was the most horrible experience. It was icy cold. Like, like middle of winter at 10 o'clock at night, icy cold. Like the kind of thing you don't want to put your foot into in June at 10 o'clock at night with this freezing, freezing cold bath. And it was horrible. I mean, first world problems, right? I, I readily admit that. Like, I, there are a lot of people in the world who have it far worse than I did. But that was really horrible that night for me. It was the opposite of what I expected. 
If it was the op- it was the opposite of what I expected, I re- and, and not only that, I, what I realized is because we were in a rental, it was a gas hot water system, and so there was I didn't make a mistake with the tap. There was just no hot water in the house, and so I had to wash my face with cold water and go to bed without even having a shower, and it was just such a letdown. Like what promised to be wonderful and soothing and fantastic and excellent and life giving, I ended up just in bed, just angry. And I'm pretty sure someone stole our gas bottle. Like, I still hold that to this day. My wife thinks that I was, I'm delusional with that, and I'm pretty sure someone stole our gas bottle. We were, you know, I'm, I'm still to this day think that's the case. See, it's one thing when our expectations aren't met, but it's another thing altogether when we receive the opposite of what we expected. My example is innocuous and silly, but you get the point. When an, an oasis promises water but proves to be a mirage. When a meeting promises a promotion but is actually just delivers bad news. When a celebration is meant to create joy instead brings anguish. It's disappointing, it's inverted, it's upside down. And all throughout our passage today we're going to see things that look like one thing but are actually the opposite. When Jesus began his ministry in Mark chapter 1, and we looked at this in uh, around August last year when we started our series in Mark, we learned that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' objective, we could say, from the outset, was to usher in the kingdom of God, the rule of God over the earth. Of which, of which Jesus would be king. This is why we've named our teaching series through the book of Mark, Jesus the King, because he is the king. And very simply by saying Jesus is our king, what we are also saying is we are not. We are not the king of our own lives. We are not the queen of our own lives. We're not in charge. In the same way that ScoMo holds the highest office in our land, so too, if we're a Christian... His followers of Jesus, uh, Jesus holds the highest office, office in the lives of his followers. And he is worthy of our fidelity, of our love, of our worship, and of our adoration. But how does one usher in a new kingdom? How is Jesus meant to usher in this new kingdom? At the time of Jesus, uh, the majority of people who lived in Israel were the Jews. And that had been their home for hundreds and hundreds of years, save for about 70 years, about 400 years earlier when they were in exile. There was at this stage, however, another ruling land, another ruling authority in the land. The sovereign nation of Rome had jurisdiction over Israel, which meant that the highest office in the land was actually Caesar himself, represented by his delegate Pilate. How would a humble carpenter from a backwater town like Nazareth contend against Caesar of Rome? What kind of army would Jesus need to mobilize? to usher in his kingdom? What kind of political support would he need to raise? What kind of leaders would he need to court to accomplish his goal? These are quite likely the kinds of questions that the average Jew would have been asking about the Messiah to come. How would the Messiah raise and mobilize the kind of military force needed to overthrow Rome and bring about a new kingdom? And if you read through the Gospel of Mark, you can see these questions kind of lurking subliminally behind every conversation that people have with Jesus. They seem to always be asking the question, hey, when are you at this stage going to restore this Jesus? Like, you can see it happening behind the scenes. 
How is Jesus going to do this? It's bound to be violent. It's bound to be bloody. But when Jesus does usher in this kingdom, it's not how anybody expects it. It's not by force of military might. He brings about his kingdom not by argument and reasoning and political maneuvering. It's by humbly going to his own death that he inaugurates God's kingdom. You see, the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom where Jesus says things like the first shall be last. It's upside down. The king has to die. God's kingdom comes not through gaining more power, but by losing it. God's kingdom comes not by gaining more money, but by actually giving money away. God's kingdom comes not from gaining influence, but actually growing in humility. So when Jesus does usher in his kingdom, it is bloody, it does get bloody, but it's not their blood, it's his blood. It's an upside-down kingdom. And if you don't understand that about God's kingdom, then you'll never actually love the king. In fact, the king will be a stumbling block to you. Maybe we could put it this way. If you think that by being a Christian, you are guaranteed to be rewarded with earthly things in this life, then you've completely misunderstood what the kingdom of God is all about. You completely misunderstood what the king is all about. And the passage that we're looking at today shows a major part of how Jesus brought about his kingdom. And it follows immediately after the events of last week. If you remember uh, last week, Jesus had had the Passover meal with his disciples. And afterwards, they went to a garden in a place called Gethsemane. And we pressed pause last week after Jesus repeatedly found his disciples sleeping through his deepest hour of need. And we pressed play again this morning as Judas, one of the twelve, comes to betray him. In our text today, it's going to become clear that our king... Jesus Christ is utterly worthy of, of our unswerving and unreserved fidelity, love, admiration, and worship. That's the main point, really, of today's passage. Jesus is our king, and he is worthy of our unswerving and unreserved fidelity, love, admiration, and worship. As we examine what comes next in this section, we're going to see Jesus become more and more isolated, more and more alone, more and more hurt, more and more damaged. Bringing in this kingdom was going to cost Jesus everything. And there's lots that we could be talking about today. There's lots that we could look at today uh, to help us through this passage. We're going to pin uh, this sermon. I'm going to pin this sermon to three clear scenes. There's firstly the sword. There's the judge, and there's the crowd. If you can remember those three, three things, the sword, the judge, and the crowd. So firstly, there's the sword. Reading from Mark 14, 43, we're told that immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. 
The scene is tense and supercharged with emotion and intrigue. You can almost feel the adrenaline pumping through everybody's veins as Judas walks up towards Jesus. Judas had, of course, been absent since dinner, and now he suddenly shows up inexplicably with a group of men carrying swords and clubs. And Mark underlines just how, how atrocious this betrayal was in his line by saying, Judas, one of the twelve. At first sight, it seems like a rather redundant line. Yes, we know that Judas is one of the twelve. But Mark is saying that, saying, no, this is Judas, one of the twelve, coming to betray Jesus. Wasting no time, he went straight to Jesus, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Like a bath that promises hot water, a kiss promises affection. A kiss promises faithfulness, a kiss promises love. But this kiss meant none of those things. This kiss meant betrayal. Judas's actions here give us a glimpse of the tyranny of our own hearts. How often do we kiss Jesus on a Sunday morning and yet go about betraying him Monday to Saturday? How often do we sell out our Lord for cheap and fleeting rewards? We might say, oh, Judas, he's not so bad. He just got mixed up with the wrong crowd. If you've ever watched uh, the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, that's definitely the impression you get. But that's wrong. Judas was using Jesus for his own gain. And his betrayal stands as a warning for those of us who would find ourselves doing the same thing. Judas was a lover of money. He was a thief. He had heard Jesus' kingdom plans. He had seen how upside down Jesus' kingdom was. He didn't like the idea of the first being last and the last being first. And he had come to realize that following Jesus would not result in his own personal gain. Are you following Jesus for your own personal gain? Are you in this Christianity thing so that you might get the blessed life? Or maybe we could ask, it, uh, ask this question, is your faith in Jesus conditional upon him providing some need for you? You see, the warning from Judas is this. Someone can very easily call themselves a follower of Jesus but actually have no desire for Christ at all. You can do all of the Christian things, say all of the Christian words, sing all of the Christian songs, pray all of the Christian prayers, and yet be only concerned with getting Jesus to give you something other than himself. See, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you might be thinking to yourself, oh, this is what Christianity is. You know, you, you've got to act really good. You've got to put on your best behavior. You've got to be a good person. And then as when God sees that, then he will reward you with salvation. He'll, he will actually save you. He'll take you to heaven and not send you to hell. But actually, Christianity doesn't teach us this at all. The, the Bible teaches us very, very clearly that actually we don't deserve what Jesus can give us and what he comes to give us is ultimately himself. The highest prize of the gospel, the goodest good of the good news is that God gives us himself. We get God. Christian, is your relationship with Jesus a bit like Judas's? Look at the kiss. The, the kiss is public affection but private indifference private bitterness. Is this what your relationship with Jesus looks like? To, to everyone around you, you look like a Christian, but behind closed doors, you're indifferent towards him. If that's you, listen up, because there's good news for you. 
if you're indifferent towards Jesus within your own heart, your only hope is the Jesus whom you're indifferent, indifferent towards. Your only hope is to repent from your sin and turn towards him. Now, the question we've got to ask them is why? Like, what, why turn to Jesus? Like, what is it about Jesus that's actually going to, to replace this indifference with love? What, what's, what is it about Jesus that is going to warm up this cold heart? It's going to turn ice into fire. What will do that? And the answer is the sword. You see, these people, they came to arrest Jesus with swords because they thought that his kingdom could be stopped with a sword. Even his own disciples mistakenly thought this. One of the followers, we think it's Peter from the other gospel accounts, one of his followers jumps forward and, and slices off the ear of one of the men who would come to arrest Jesus. So even they misunderstood it at this stage. But they can't stop Jesus with a sword because Jesus didn't come with a sword. Jesus' kingdom is upside down. It wasn't going to be established by inflicting violence. Jesus' kingdom is established by absorbing violence. He didn't come with the sword. He came to face the sword, to be cut by the sword. This sword in this garden reminds us of another sword in another garden in God's word. If we go back to Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin and are evicted from the garden, they are sent away from God's presence. And what does God put in place to make sure that they cannot get back into the garden to get to the tree of life again? Genesis 3.24 says this, He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God used a sword in that garden to stop his people from coming back into his presence. And now, in this garden, God was going to use a different sword to bring his people back in. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve failed to live according to God's rule and face the sword. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus perfectly lived according to God's rule and he got the sword. He took the sword. Why? Because he loves us. He was doing it on our behalf. Because of our sin, we were driven away from the presence of God by a sword. But because Jesus faced that sword on our behalf, he took the sword, he was struck and killed. He stood in our place so that you and I could come back into the presence of God. And therein lies our reason to repent. Therein lies our reason to come to Jesus because he did that for us. Notice that he takes, he takes the sword amongst a, a crowd of misunderstood disciples. Understand what Jesus has done for us. Understand what he has done for us. Let that sink deep into your heart. Meditate on that. If you're here and you're not a Christian, the only way that you can escape the sword of God's judgment is by Jesus who took the sword on your behalf because of his love for you. If anything this week, think about this. Jesus took the sword on my behalf. Let that be on repeat in your mind. Jesus took the sword on my behalf. And what happens when Jesus faces the sword? In verse 50, they all left him and fled. These are his disciples fleeing him, abandoning him. One disciple who most scholars actually believe is Mark, is Mark himself who wrote this gospel, follows for a bit, but when, Jesus, when he is seized, he runs away, preferring the shame of nakedness than being associated with Jesus. He is completely and utterly alone. It's the sword. The second thing we have, the second scene we can see in here that we're going to look at today is the judge. 
In this second scene, we see a judge, and Jesus is led to the high priest to be judged. And he is given what can only be called a miscarriage of justice. There was nothing legal going on here. It's here that we see another example of something that looks like one thing but delivers the opposite. In the same way that a bath promises hot water, in the same way that a kiss promises affection but brings betrayal, here we find Jesus in a courtroom. A courtroom should be the pla- a place of sanctuary where justice happened and the innocent are defended. But that's not what Jesus got. Instead of getting justice, he gets a mistrial. And though he is innocent, he is condemned as being guilty. The judge and the jury come to that room already believing that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. And then they fabricate witnesses and testimonies against him to prove their case. But even in a room, in a courtroom, where the entire assembly made up of the Sanhedrin has already decided that Jesus is guilty, they still can't get their story straight. The witnesses they paid off were contradicting one another and their stories, each false testimony cancelled out the next. Can you see in this scene that Jesus hasn't uttered a word yet and he's still beating them? He's still beating them. Even in his silence, he is winning an argument. So finally, the high priest, exacerbated, asks Jesus a very different question, a direct question. From verse 60, he says, um, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This courtroom scene is a travesty. They've rigged the witnesses, they've rigged the jury, and they're still unable to prosecute Jesus. And so it's left actually to Jesus' own words to convict himself. Make no mistake, if Jesus wanted to talk his way out of that room, he could have done it. But he doesn't. Instead, he, he says something to them that is so controversial that, that that becomes the sole piece of evidence that they actually hang his conviction on. So what does Jesus say that is so controversial in this? He's quoting scripture. He's quoting scripture from two places. The first place is when he says, uh, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. And that's a quotation from Psalm 110. And if you go back and you read Psalm 110, you'll see that it's talking about the Messiah and that there's going to become a day where God is going to come and judge the earth. And then Jesus also quotes Daniel 7 when he talks about the coming on the clouds with heaven. And again, Daniel chapter 7 is about God coming to judge the earth. And here's why Jesus' words are enough to indict him. He's saying, you're judging me. But there's going to come a day where I'm going to come and I'm going to judge you. Imagine a year nine student at school being brought in front of the principal and the head of department and the teacher and the year level coordinator and all the, all the, just the authority in the school. And they come against this year nine student because he's been very, very terrible. And they say to him, we're going to expel you. They've decided they're going to expel him. They, they say to him, we're going to expel you. And as, after he's told of his fate, this year nine student says this one thing. He says, you can expel me, but one day I'm going to come back here and I'm going to be your boss and you're going to work for me. Now, I know some of the school teachers in here, your skin is crawling from, this, from a year nine student saying that. Like I can see Joel is just getting stressed from a year nine student potentially saying such horrible things. That is what Jesus is saying. 
He's standing in front of this crowd of men who are, they, they, are, they represent the highest strata of religious and political power of that day. And he says to them, you can judge me all you want, but there's going to come a day where I'm going to come back here, I'm going to return, and I'm going to be the judge. I'm going to be the right hand of God. I'm going to come in power. I am the Messiah. I am the God's anointed one. Can you see why Jesus' words condemn him to death? Verse 63, the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. You see, this is the cup that Jesus had to drink. He could have said many other things to get himself out of that room, but he chose to drink the cup by saying something that was not only perfectly true, but that would also condemn him. Can we see the beauty of this? That, that Jesus is actually the judge. And since the only way that he could save sinners was being judged by them, he had to tell them that he was going to come and be their judge. The only way that mankind could escape the judgment of God was by passing judgment on God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And the only way that you and I can receive salvation is if we know that that judge has come and become the judge for us, become the judged one for us. He took our judgment. He took our spot. He took our place. We were the ones who were accused and he came and took our spot. He took our place. You and I can be declared innocent because of what Jesus has done for us and that's what's on offer in the gospel. The third thing we see here is the crowd. In the final scene, we focus in on this crowd, and the crowds make up a really interesting place in Mark's gospel. If you are, as I was being preparing for this series, I noticed early on that this crowd featured, the, the many crowds featured. I went around and started circling every time Mark made mention of this crowd. And all throughout Mark's gospel, this crowd is present, and this crowd is presented in Mark's gospel as a fickle bunch Easily moved and shaken by popular trends. They are hungry, they are lost, and they are in need of a shepherd. But they also carry a certain amount of authority. We're told on numerous occasions that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, for all of their authority, they actually feared the crowds. This is why they arrest Jesus and hold Jesus' trial at night, so they can avoid the great crowds prying into their business. It was, of course, the crowd that Peter feared and so denied his friendship with Jesus. It was a crowd that the rest of the disciples feared and so they kept their distance. So in front of the palace where Pilate lived, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders manipulated the crowds to get their desired outcome. They could charge Jesus with blasphemy, but they needed Rome to pass down the capital punishment. They knew that Pilate had to play a political game and so needed to satisfy the crowds. And so if they could get the crowds to turn on Jesus... Pilate will be forced to deliver Jesus over to crucifixion. And we read in that horrible, horrible scene that these crowds, fickle, inconsistent, would prefer a murderous person like Barabbas to their savior Jesus. And this is, of course, what happens. The crowd, as fickle and inconsistent and as easy, easily manipulated as you and I, they turn on Jesus. Now remember, this is the same crowd that celebrated Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem about a week earlier. They hailed him as the son of David, their Messiah. And it's perhaps the contrast of the crowd on this day that creates such a striking image. Or if you remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey, 
They, say, they cried out to Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. In other words, here comes our king. That's what it means to be the son of David, the, the one who's descended from their, their favorite king, King David. They saw that Jesus was the Messiah. They saw that he was the king. They said, Hosanna to the king. You don't get much stronger kingly messianic language than that. And yet now, when Pilate, the one who represented Rome and Caesar, their enemies, and the difficult political climate that Israel found itself in, when Pilate comes to them and says, what shall I do with a man that you call king of the Jews? They say to him, crucify him. Can you see the irony? This crowd who looks like they love Jesus, then turn on him. The opposite becomes true. They call Jesus their true king and they are so happy when he shows up. But when their enemy asks them, what shall I do with your king? They say, kill him. How fickle and inconsistent and just straight up ridiculous are these crowds? How fickle and inconsistent and straight up ridiculous are you and I? Crowds cheering for Jesus' death. Soldiers, a whole battalion of them, just about 600 men, wanting Jesus' death. Pilate, the, the, the representative of Caesar in the land, indifferent towards him. The chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, all delivering him over to death, declaring that he is, he is guilty of something that he has not done. What does Jesus do? He's silent. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't argue. He doesn't debate. He's silent. He's silent. He could have opened his mouth and got himself out of that situation, but he was silent. Listen to his silence. Let his silence tell us something about who he is, that he willingly went to the cross. Restrained strength the embodiment of absolute, pure meekness. Silent. He is, as the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah said, he would be hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. Isaiah said he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus stays silent. With a few simple words, he could have won over those dumb crowds. But he stays silent, obedient like a sheep that has been sheared, like a lamb led to the slaughter. He is totally alone. He doesn't fight. He doesn't try and escape. You don't see him struggling to get down off the cross. He went there willingly. This was his call. This is our king who as he loses all of his power, displays power that is unmatched. This is the upside-downness of God's kingdom. He willingly goes to the cross. Why? Because Jesus' death is the only thing powerful enough to remove our sin. His blood was the only thing that could make us holy, even though we've sinned and continue to sin over and over and over again. 
You see, by bringing forth his kingdom in this way, he was subverting the kingdom of this world. He was showing that the kind of people who he welcomes into his, his, his kingdom are the weak. The ones who have nothing to give, who have got nothing to contribute. The people who are welcomed into God's kingdom are not those who have somehow earned an invitation. They don't come to Jesus because they see Jesus as a means to slightly improve their lives. Those who enter the kingdom of God are those who know that without the grace of Jesus Christ, they are nothing. If we come to the cross saying, Jesus, look how good I've been, we don't understand it. If we come to Jesus saying, Jesus, I hope I've been good enough for you, we don't understand it. But if we come to Jesus saying, Jesus, were it not for your grace, I am nothing. That's when we understand it. So we understand there is no king like Jesus. Jesus is our king. He is worthy of our unswerving and unreserved fidelity, love, admiration, and worship. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you might think that your fidelity, your love, and your admiration, and your worship might be better spent on something else. Like on money, or a house, or a career, or a spouse, or living out your dreams, but you're wrong. You're just wrong. There is no greater king than Jesus. There is no one who is more worthy of your fidelity, of your love, of your admiration, and of your worship than Jesus. If you're here and you're a Christian, Jesus is still worthy of those things from you. Not one of those things, for, of, not one of those things of, of our fidelity, of our love, of our worship, of our admiration towards Jesus, not one of those things is optional. Not one of those things can be done whenever we feel like it. If you're a Christian, it means that Jesus is your king and you can't live your life as if you're the one in charge. We must be obedient to Jesus. He is worthy of our total and unreserved fidelity every minute of every day of our entire lives. The ridiculous notion that Jesus is our Savior and not our Lord should be done away with. This is our king. This is the one who has laid claim to our lives. We can't read this and say, okay, well, I'll have Jesus on Sundays, but nowhere else. We can't read this and say, well, I'll, I'll, I like that he loves me and that he gave his life for me, but I'm still the one who's in charge. I'm still the one who gets to live my life how I want to live. If we say Jesus is my savior, but this is still my life, then Jesus has not yet been our savior. Not yet. But he can be. It's what's on offer to us right now. You see, when we think about owing him our fidelity, our love, our admiration, and our worship, all of those things are only possible when we look at who he is. All of those things are only possible when we see what he's done for us. If we think we've got to worship him out of our own ability to worship, that we've got to somehow conjure up admiration for him, that we've just got to be a little bit more passionate, a little bit more zealous, a little bit uh, more, spend a bit more time cultivating passion for Jesus, then we're never going to get there. But if we look at the grace of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross, what he did for us in becoming totally isolated and alone, beaten, mocked, spat upon, denied, abandoned, accused, kicked, mocked, just all those things, all those things he did for us. He goes to the cross silently, obediently, 
lovingly. There is no one more beautiful than our king. He's the kind of king that didn't come with a sword, but face a sword. He came not to judge us, but to be judged by us. He came not by popular vote, but was entirely deserted and all alone. And if we know that, and if we take that deep inside of our hearts, we'll know that he's the kind of king who is worthy for us to give our lives to also, since he gave us his. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you that you gave us your life. You gave us your son, Jesus Christ, who gave up his life for us on the cross. Lord, we know there wasn't just a physical toll there on the cross. There was an emotional toll. There was a relational toll. There was a spiritual toll. And it cost Jesus everything. Father, where we have not been worshipping you, where we have not been admiring you, where we have been falling short of that, we repent. Where we have harbored indifference towards you, we repent. And we come back to you, Lord, not with declarations and promises that we can do better, but we come to you asking that you would reveal yourself to us once again. Restore that first love to us. Make cold hearts hot, Lord. Warm up our hearts, heat up our hearts, set our hearts on fire for you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you established a kingdom that can't be taken away. You established a kingdom that would go on forever, and you sit on the throne, and you still sit on the throne to this day, and that has not changed. Regardless of whatever has happened in the world this past week, regardless of the crime and the pain, regardless of the, of the natural disasters, regardless of the, of the issues that each one of us have faced this past week, Lord, you are still the king and nothing has changed that, Lord. Nothing will ever change that. You are still our king. So, Father, increase our worship. Increase our faithfulness towards you. Increase our love towards you. Increase our admiration and our adoration of you, Lord. May we desire you more and more. May we fall head over heels in love with you, Lord. May we be swept up in in emotional gratitude towards you, Lord. May you stir up the affections of our hearts that we would love you more and more and more. That you would be the anchor of our souls. That you would be the central gravitational force within our hearts. And we would find you just so much more beautiful than anything else. And we would know that you are far better than anything else this world could ever offer us. And Lord, we know we can't do any of those things of our own merit. We need you to do that for us. So Jesus, we ask that you would do that in us today. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. 
but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.